This is an ABC podcast. So when you come up with a great idea at work, is the answer back to you, okay, let's do it, or yeah, nah? Why is it that some people seem to get all the breaks? They get the new gigs, they get interesting, challenging projects and support for their startup. What is so special about them? Well, that's the question that Sunil Gupta wanted to answer. Sunil, welcome to This Working Life. Lisa, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You've got to tell us about your big failure and how it ended up in the New York Times, Sunil. Yeah. Well, you know, I uh, I receive a phone call from the, the organizer of a conference called FailCon, which literally stands for Failure Conference. Now, up until this point in time, I've been on the other side of failed projects, uh, missed promotions, and I've also had a couple of startups that went nowhere. And, and she calls me and she says, hey, you know, you've been nominated <laughs> twice to speak at this conference. <laughs> and, 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 you know, it's, it's this humbling experience where it's like, gosh, you know, I, I have tried my whole career to craft this image of success. And here I am being asked to keynote this conference on failure. The reason I said yes is because at that time I was actually trying to raise money for uh, a company called Rise. It was a startup that I had founded. It was one-on-one health coaching right over your mobile phone. And every investor that I had pitched said no. And so I was on I was on the lookout for other investors who could come on board and and uh, and so I agreed to I agreed to be part of this conference because I thought maybe there'd be some investors. <laughs> Hang on, in the crowd. so you decided to share your failures to get more investors to invest in this company? <laughs> yeah, I know I know it sounds a little I know it sounds a little weird, but uh, you know when you're when you're grasping at straws, you know there's there's the, the, you take what you can get, and so. You know, I'm on stage. I'm kind of on the lookout for investors as I'm speaking, as I'm sharing. You know, some of these some of these failure stories that I have. I didn't realize that there was a reporter from the New York Times in the audience, scribbling notes. And so, fast forward to you know my apartment in San Francisco, and I'm with my wife, and she literally opens up the Saturday New York Times, and there's this massive story on failure, and it's my face. <laughs> <laughs> at, the, at the top of this story. So Lisa, I mean, I can't, I mean, literally, I mean, at that time, this was in, you know, this is in 2013-ish timeframe. If you would have Googled failure, you, you, my face would have been one of your top search results. And, and so, um, you know, it's interesting because when something like that happens, you can go in one of two directions. One is that you can kind of be an ostrich about it, put your head in the sand, hope, hopefully it just passes. The other is that you can actually embrace it, yeah. uh, which is what I decided to do with some, with some advice from my friends, which is to say, why don't you actually start emailing these investors who haven't been meeting you for coffee, the ones that have been kind of blowing you off, and sending them the article and saying, hey, you know, <laughs> clearly, as you can see from this article, I don't know what I'm doing. Would you be willing to grab coffee, grab, some, you know, grab, grab 15 minutes and give me some advice? Uh, and, the, and that ended up being the foundation of the conversations that I started to have for this book. And so how did you start researching becoming backable? Initially, it was all about focusing on entrepreneurship and venture capital. But eventually, I decided to cast a really wide net. And I started to talk to people from all walks of life, Oscar-winning filmmakers, celebrity chefs, military leaders, 
founders of iconic companies. And what I began to realize is that being backable is not just for celebrities. It's not just for CEOs. It's for all of us. And the good news is that I think backability can be learned because if you rewind the clock on pretty much every backable person's story, their chapter one looks very different than the current part of their chapter today. You know, they didn't, they weren't born backable. There were a set of things that they learned along the way. And that's effectively what we tried to reverse engineer in this book. And why would you, um, why did you cling on to the concept of backable? Why backable? Because I think we all need it. You know, I, I feel like there are certain people who seem to have this ability to go into a room and really shine. They, they, they have sort of this it quality that I think is somewhat mysterious. And I think a lot of us sort of look at those people and we say, well, I wish I had a little bit of that. And, and I think that being backable has gone from sort of this thing that is nice, that has been, that has been nice to, to, I think, being quite necessary. And look at the number of people that have lost their, lost their work in the, in the past year alone during the pandemic, or the number of people that, that have ideas that we're incubating. I, I'm convinced that we all have sort of an idea tucked away somewhere. That doesn't necessarily mean, by the way, that you need to go start your own company. It could be an idea for the company you're working in. It could be an idea for your community. But I think we all have an idea tucked away somewhere. And, you know, as we know, it's not just about coming up with an idea that really makes it a reality. It's about how do you get other people involved because no one makes it alone. No matter what it is, we need hiring managers, we need teams, we need partners, clients, even friends and family to believe in us. Did you have any theories going in as to why you were stumbling? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I, in the beginning, I certainly thought that there was going to be a style of communication there was going to be a certain way that backable people spoke, and I certainly was not speaking in that way. You know, there, for example, I thought that backable people were going to be very gifted at using things like eye contact and hand gestures and pacing. But uh, the more that I spoke to backable people, the more I studied backable people, the more I realized that it's not charisma that makes a person convincing. It's conviction. Backable people take the time to convince themselves first and then they let that conviction shine through whatever style it is that feels most natural to them. And do you have a story of someone who isn't necessarily trying to sell an idea to a venture capitalist, but uh, has taken the idea of being more backable and actually changed their work life, Sunil? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the one of the principles in the book, one of the, one of my favorite stories, and then we'll get to sort of, you know, somebody who was applying for a job and how she used it, was that when I was um I was waiting I was in the waiting room for uh, this Hollywood producer named Brian Grazier, and Brian has worked on and he's won like 130 Emmys, he's won dozens of Oscars, so he's this really highly sought out Hollywood producer. But he also invests in companies and he runs large teams. So when I was sitting in his waiting room. There were all these people that were there to pitch him on all these different things, all these creative projects or jobs. And you can just tell, Lisa, that the anxiety inside the room was, was, was quite high. People were nervous. Now, I wasn't that nervous because I was just there to study his story. So when I went back there I, I, to his conference room, I, I said to him, I said, you know, Brian, you have a room full of nervous <laughs> people out there right now. If I could go out there and give them one piece of advice, what would it be? And he thinks about it for a moment. And he says, give me something that I can't easily find on Google. 
give me an insight that is not easily Googleable. And I found that so interesting because as I talked to more and more decision makers, what I started to realize is that every great interview, every great presentation, every great pitch tends to be built on an insight, tends to be built on something that felt a little bit not obvious mm. and something that you personally went out into the world and found. You went beyond Google to find that. It could be through talking to customers. It could be through test driving products, but you sort of put yourself into the story. And in the book, I refer to this as finding an earned secret, finding an earned secret that you can bring into the meeting. So not too long ago, just a few weeks ago, uh, someone called me and she said, I was applying for a job. I was applying for a job at a social media company. But the trick of it was, and she's a mother and she's returning to the workforce. The trick of it was that she didn't actually use this social media product. It's very much like a Gen Z company. <laughs> so she does something really interesting. She interviews all of her daughter's friends, every single one of them, about what their experience is like using this product. And then get this, she has, she has them send her screenshots of their experience. So these little moments were like, oh, I wish they'd had that feature or this kind of bugs me a little bit or I love this. So all these little screenshots, then she collects these screenshots. She has them in a gallery on her phone. And when she shows up to the interview, which is you know during the pandemic, so it's completely over Zoom, she, she's showing this hiring manager these screenshots that she's collected about the experience. This guy is so blown away by the level of effort and, this, and, and these earned secrets that she's bringing into the meeting, that not only does she get the job, but in the middle of this interview, he brings in one of their designers. He literally, he patches him into the Zoom conversation and says, you've got you've to take a look at this. Again, this is somebody who went from not having any insight about the company at all, not even being a user, to all of a sudden bringing these earned insights into a meeting. You're listening to This Working Life on Radio National. I'm Lisa Leong, today exploring what makes people take a chance on you with Sunil Gupta, who's researched this for his book, Backable. Sunil, you write about one of the most sought-after designers in the tech world and how her process gets people on board by what you call flipping outsiders to insiders. How? She'd walk into a meeting, she would share her designs, and she would, you know, there would typically be a room full of people giving her feedback. What she would do is she would pull up a, a Google Doc right, up, right there on the spot, and she would start writing down each of the notes, one by one, writing down each of the notes. Then what she would do is she would go back to her desk and she would take all those notes and she would put them into basically like a, almost a list format, right? Then one by one, she would evaluate each one of these points of feedback and she would decide A, whether to incorporate or B, whether not to incorporate it. But here was the key. When she came back to the meeting for the follow-up, she'd pull that same list of feedback up and she would show every person whether their feedback was incorporated or not. And if it wasn't, then why? What was the reasoning? Now, did that make everybody feel great? I mean, no. I mean, if you had an idea and it, and it didn't make it, of course, it's not like a great warm feeling. But what, what we realize is that just this idea of being heard and knowing that your idea was considered, knowing that it mattered, is, is I think the majority of what it takes when we're talking about flipping outsiders to insiders. And building on that, I really liked your concept of the armchair anthropologist. Yeah. yeah. Um, can you expand on that? You know, Daniel Kahneman, who's this Nobel Prize winning economist, showed us through his through this, you know, this this study called loss aversion, that we as human beings, the pain 
of making a bad decision is twice as powerful as the pleasure that we get from making the right decision. And it's very important to keep that in mind when you walk into the room because we can't just point out the positive. We have to neutralize the negative. And one of the ways to neutralize the negative is by showing how this idea is going to exist no matter what. It's not just, hey, my idea is new, exciting, it should exist. It's no, it's going to exist. It's abs- this is absolutely going to happen. And if you follow the way that I think creative leaders work within companies, when they're trying to convince boards and trying to convince executive teams of their ideas, they're not just saying, hey, like, I think we should do this. They're saying, this is the way the world is headed. So getting back to the anthropologist hat, what they do is they put on sort of this viewpoint of like, which way is the world actually headed with or without my idea, with or without us? Where is the, what's the world going to look like five to 10 years from now? And then- then they talk about how the idea fits in. I found it really interesting that you say in your book, Backable, to face down any potential objections straight up. Why? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the notion in the book is it's called steering into objections. And part of the reason that we want to do that is because when the person on the other side of the table has a very clear objection to our idea or for the reason why we should get a job. And, and it's just clear, like, it's like, you're missing this, this, this experience, or, you know, you don't have the background as an entrepreneur to, to run this company. What tends to happen is that that will nag at your audience throughout your presentation. And as long as it's nagging at them, they're not really tuning in and paying attention to your pitch. They're not really paying attention to anything else, or at least not fully tuned in. And so, you know, what backable people tend to do is they tend to think about the two to three key objections to their own idea or or their own reason for getting a job. And they'll steer directly into those early on in the presentation. Now, their answers might not be perfect, right? It may not be. The person who who like turned me on to this idea of steering into objections is a guy named Reed Hoffman. He's the co-founder of LinkedIn. And what he said was that when he was starting LinkedIn, it was 2003, and the bubble had just burst, right? The, the internet bubble. And so people were very skittish about investing in dot-com companies. And they were particularly skittish about the idea of investing in a company, an internet company that wasn't making money. <laughs> now, at the time, LinkedIn wasn't making a dime of revenue. And he knew that would be on their minds. So instead of avoiding that to the very end and letting that come up during Q&A, he said, I want to get this out of the way right, right now. We're not making revenue. But there are three ways that I believe that we can make revenue over the next few years. And in the course of this presentation, we're going to walk through those three ways. What that did is that put them at ease and let them tune in to the rest of the presentation. And what Reed will tell you is that, again, that those three ways were not bulletproof in any, in any way. Like, in fact, I think all three of them ended up failing. They ended up going with something else down the line. But just the fact that he was willing to steer into those objections, not only did it sort of put them at ease, but it also won him a lot of credibility in the room. Thank you so much for sharing. And hopefully we can all be that little bit more backable in the world. (laughs) Well, thanks for having me on, Lisa. I really appreciate it. Sunil Gupta. And to round out his story, Sunil did find success in his business, Rise, which he then sold in 2016. So at This Week in Life, we decided to do a little bit of local research to find out what Australian angel investors and venture capitalists look for when they decide who to back. First up, angel investor Julie Dempsey. 
Julie is the former general manager of SBE Australia, an accelerator program helping female-led companies grow, and Nick Peace, a venture capitalist for over a decade who has helped a range of Australian companies grow. What I look for in a startup that I want to invest in, first and foremost, is the founder. That is the heart and soul behind the business, the person who's going to make the decisions that are going to impact the business and safeguard my investment. So the first company that I've invested in has one of the most amazing founders that I have ever met. I had the good fortune to work with her in a group that I was running supporting founders. And this founder is tenacious, smart, creative, uh, and really focused on the business that she's building. Uh, And she's really good about asking questions and bringing in the right team to support her. Rather, that is the team that is building the business itself or a team of advisors. When I evaluate startups from an investment perspective, the place to start is really the opportunity. Is it an opportunity that is massive or could it be massive? Is the problem already well served or is there a sort of a crying need that's just waiting for someone to go out and solve it? And the third aspect of that is, is the startup, is the person that you're in front of, do they have a particular insight? Do they have a particular approach or way of looking at that problem that no one else has been able to see or execute on, but they do? If you've got those three things line up, chances are you're looking at something pretty interesting. What I think makes somebody backable is having a really strong curiosity in terms of the problem that they're looking to solve so that they're always learning and researching new information, new insights, and getting really clear on what their potential consumers or customers are wanting and needing. Somebody who stays focused on that in their business and continues to take information in from those who are advising them or that might have some great insights. But in the end, they know and trust themselves and their intuition and their ability to really make the right decision to move that business forward. Well, I think if I was to be looking at starting a startup, I think I'd be asking myself probably three or four key questions. I would first be looking at the the opportunity and the problem and going, is this a problem that's big enough that it's worth me devoting a decade of my life to? Is the problem big enough that if I solve it, people are going to get really excited? Because if the opportunity's not a big one, it's very hard to get people to rally around that opportunity. The third one, I guess, is do I have a right to play? Do I have a really unique insight into this opportunity that no one else has or no one else is bothered to take seriously? And probably the fourth one I'd take, I guess, am I persistent enough to know not to give up uh, just because success doesn't emerge quickly? Am I humble enough to know when I need to bring in people around me so that the story isn't really a founder story, it's a startup story, it's a company story, because ultimately, you know, startups 
aren't really about founders. They're about the team that comes together at the end to deliver the final product and the final success. My name is Matthew Allen, or Matt Allen, or Matter. I'm the CEO of Tractor Ventures, an investment company that invests into other tech companies. Uh, what makes someone backable, in my view, is their connection to the problem. So in technology, the solution is always a variable, always modeling around and, and trying to find the right one is a challenge. So it's always about how deeply the person understands the problem they're solving. Another thing I look for is people who are really have a connection to the customer who has that problem. So a lot of the time it's through lived experience. They are probably going to be the customer of the problem they're solving. Uh, and sometimes it's through observed experience, you know, an outsider looking into an industry going, there's something broken here. I've just got to go fix it. I guess I have a bias for people who have the lived experience rather than the observed experience though. Yeah, so I guess in terms of what else makes people backable, the other point I would probably add is the people who tend to be most successful in startups tend to have um, almost an insatiable curiosity and or willing to, willingness to learn. You know, the founders you want to back tend to walk into a meeting, even if it's a meeting that most people would see as a waste of time, and they tend to walk out with something. And it may be something that's not directly relevant to what they're doing today or even for three years, but it sort of goes into the kit bag, ready to be used in, you know, six months' time, six years' time. And certainly the, the founders who do well have taken 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 meetings, so have, have probably wasted their time in 80% of those meetings. But in 20% of those meetings, they've walked out with something that has really been useful or vital to their eventual success. And that willingness or keenness to learn and curious curiosity and, and interest in people, it tends to shine through really as an almost as an innate character trait. So and it's it's kind of funny that the sort of you know perhaps the central casting entrepreneur is is someone who who's very brash, who's very confident, who talks more than they listen, well, you know, to sort of uh, bang on about their vision of how the world's going to be. And and sometimes you need to be able to sort of tell your vision of what the world's going to be ad nauseum. But, the, but the, the, the founders I tend to see as most successful tend to be the ones who listen at least if not more than they talk, who are humble about where they are but have an inner belief about where they're going to go. And are always looking for you know little snippets here, little opportunities there that can get them where they need to get to. So almost like sort of you know, scavengers, but in the best possible <laughs> sense of the word scavengers, perhaps. The times that I've got it wrong is when the problem that was being solved was not actually really a problem, or the problem was not big enough. Uh, you know, the problem needs to be of big enough consequence to the person suffering it that they're able to change the way they behave and especially in business land, pay for it. The challenge we have as investors is that we have to assume a bunch of knowledge around the problem domain and doing research on that is, um, is part of the diligence process. But sometimes people just fall in love with problems that aren't big enough to, to actually solve. If a founder is solving a problem that's not big enough to solve, one of two things can happen. They, they either give up or quite often problems adjacent to the problem they started appear while they're talking to their customers and trying to solve problems. So a great founder will always have their 
eyes and ears open for an adjacent problem that may actually even be bigger than the one they started with. And a lot of that is spending more time with their customers and realising whether or not they're going down the right path or there's another path just over there that they need to jump onto. Advice that I have for somebody to get a business idea or a startup off the ground is to just do it. Get started. So many of us who are entrepreneurs feel like we have to have everything right and we need to know all the answers at the beginning to make it happen. And that's just not so. That's not how a new business works. So as long as you have a good idea of what that business should be, what a good product fit might be with your target audience, just start going and experimenting. And then you can take it from there and build on that. Julie Dempsey. And if you're keen to take the leap into becoming an entrepreneur, make sure you check out last week's show on how to create a portfolio career. And just a reminder to make sure you follow us so you don't miss a show. This Working Life is produced by Maria Tickle. I'm Lisa Leong, and until next week, keep working. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.